It's Monday, January 30th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how scientists are deciding how we will tell time on the moon and beyond. Plus, a new Frog and Toad series from Apple TV Plus has gay Twitter crossing their fingers. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. I'm recording this around 3.08 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or Coordinated Universal Time, or UTC, minus 5. Each person listening to my voice right now is listening at an entirely different time in the future. What time is it at this moment and place in which you're listening from? And now let me ask you this. What time is it on the moon? The moon isn't in one of Earth's time zones, and in fact, time doesn't even work the same way up there. So what time is it on the moon? And how will we keep track of and synchronize time on the moon as we expand the length and number of missions there? Turns out this is a big discussion being had right now by international space agencies. Several of them met back in November to begin drafting recommendations on how to define lunar time. Quoting an excellent piece in Nature last week on the topic of lunar time, Decisions must be made soon, says Patricia Tavella, who leads the Time Department at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures in Sevres, France. If an official lunar time is not established, space agencies and private companies will come up with their own solutions, she says. This is why we want to raise an alert now, saying, let's work together to take a common decision. End quote. Side note, how cool is it to say that you lead the time department? Makes it sound like you work at the Time Variance Authority in Loki or something. But anyways, yes, an official lunar time. That's what we're working towards. Now, why don't we have one already? It's not as if these upcoming crewed lunar missions are the first time we've sent humans and spacecraft to the moon. Well, right now, each lunar mission handles timekeeping independently, with its own timescale linked to UTC. It's not the most precise or efficient process, however. Two things that are very important when you start having multiple missions from multiple agencies and companies roving around the moon at the same time. And that's another reason getting a precise way of keeping time that everyone agrees on is important. Lunar navigation. NASA and the ESA have plans to establish a Global Satellite Navigation System, or GNSS, for the moon. Similar to a GPS, this would require a number of satellites around the moon, each with their own atomic clock, as well as a receiver on the surface. Right now, locations have been pinpointed using radio signals sent at scheduled times to large antennas on Earth. But again, with more players in the game all at once, this just won't be feasible. But for the GNSS, it would be crucial that everyone uses the same time reference, at least depending on where they are on the moon. Because there's also the question of whether there should be time zones on the moon. These would be linked to the sun's position in the sky, and Jorg Hahn, an engineer working on lunar satellite navigation at the ESA, says they might make sense for people living on the moon. So time zones would be more experiential for astronauts and not a necessity for accurate measurements. What is accurate when it comes to time on the moon, though? Quoting Nature, Defining lunar time is not simple. 
Although the definition of the second is the same everywhere, the special theory of relativity dictates that clocks tick slower in stronger gravitational fields. The moon's gravitational pull is weaker than Earth's, meaning that to an observer on Earth, a lunar clock would run faster than an Earth one. Cheryl Gramling, who leads the Position, Navigation, and Timing Team at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, estimates that a lunar clock would gain about 56 microseconds over 24 hours. Compared with one on Earth, a clock's speed would also subtly change depending on its position on the lunar surface because of the moon's rotation, says Time Department lead Tavella. Defining a lunar standard, with which all clocks are compared, will involve installing at least three master clocks that tick at the moon's natural pace and whose output is combined by an algorithm to generate a more accurate virtual timepiece. End quote. There are two major routes that could be taken overall in terms of defining a lunar time standard. The first would base lunar time on UTC, with regular synchronizations and those lunar master clocks keeping track of the time until the next sync. This would be easier for people on Earth, but maybe trickier for those on the moon. The other option, quoting again, would be to use the synthesized output of the lunar atomic clocks as the moon's own independent continuous time and to track its relationship to UTC. That way, even if the connection with Earth is lost, clocks on the moon will still agree with each other and allow safe navigation and communications, says Gramlane. Establishing an independent time is a model that will also work for the more distant planets that space agencies are ultimately targeting, such as Mars. End quote. If you've followed the explorations of any of NASA's Mars rovers over the past decade, you may have heard about Mars time. That's what scientists working on the rovers call their adjusted work and sleep schedule when they try to keep sync with the rovers. One day on Mars, or a soul, is about 37 minutes longer than one day on Earth. The teams observing and controlling these rovers don't want to lose any time, so they start living and working for 24 hours and 37 minutes every day, which necessitates adjusting by 37 minutes each day, meaning that even if you start going into work at 9 a.m. on the first day and then 9.37 a.m. the next day, eventually you'll be going to work in the middle of the night. NASA engineer Nagin Cox explained to NPR last summer that not only is it a unique experience that leaves you feeling almost constantly jet-lagged and isolated, but also bonding deeply with your team, but it can also be pretty confusing. So they came up with their own language. A day on Mars was already a soul, but yesterday, if they were referring to that time on Mars and not on Earth, was yester-soul. And tomorrow, again if referring to that time on Mars, was Nexter Soul. They also wore two watches, one with Earth time and one with Mars time. The first watchmaker to figure out how to manufacture those watches at scale for NASA was Garo Anserlian, a clockmaker who made the first watches at the request of a pair of Mars Exploration Rover Systems Engineers back in 2004. And to get the watch to tick slowly enough, he attached lead weights to alter the movement of the watch wheels. But it was very precise work that took a lot of trial and error. No matter how creative these teams have gotten with Mars time over the years, adding 37 minutes onto each Earth day where it doesn't exist isn't exactly the same as establishing a standard Martian time. Gramling from Goddard says that transmitting UTC on Mars will be even more complicated. 
In the case of both the moon and Mars, it's likely that days will be defined differently than they are here on Earth. But that doesn't mean astronauts will adhere to lunar or Martian days entirely for their own schedule, since biologically they'll still want to be on a 24-hour sleep schedule. It all makes my head spin a bit to think about. But here's another cool thing in development that that Nature article also mentioned. NASA and the ESA have been working on developing what will essentially be internet on the moon. It's called LunaNet, and it would enable communication, computing, satellite navigation, and more on a single network. As Grambling said, quote, the idea is to produce a solar system internet, and the first part would be at the moon, end quote. Solar system internet. Finally, the futuristic dreams of the mid-20th century are teaming up with the technology that largely diverted us from those dreams and set us on an entirely different path. Now that path may be forged as one, interplanetary travel and the internet. If only we can agree on how to tell time first. In today's business world, any edge could be huge. And nobody offers more timely business advice than the Harvard Business Review. Whether it's their flagship magazine or digital content featuring articles, videos, podcasts, and more, you'll gain real-world insight into the most pressing topics facing business today. And now, for just $10 a month, you'll have unlimited access to Harvard Business Review content and subscriptions. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code BUSINESS. That's hbr.org slash subscriptions, promo code BUSINESS. Apple TV has just announced its spring kids and family lineup, which includes a slew of Peanuts specials, old and new, a new Jane Goodall-inspired show about a nine-year-old budding environmentalist, season two of Harriet the Spy and several other of its animated originals, and a new animated adaptation of Frog and Toad. The Frog and Toad cartoon will be based on Arnold Lobel's now classic book series, and it will premiere on April 28th. Now, I thought there was already a Frog and Toad cartoon that aired when I was growing up, but all that I could find record of was a claymation adaptation from the 1980s. And that one was narrated by Lobel himself, which is kind of cool. I'll put a link to an episode in the show notes. Producer John Clark Matthews has been uploading most of the episodes to YouTube and his own website. But Apple describes this new cartoon as, quote, Frog and Toad are best friends who know that the true secret to friendship is not only enjoying the things you have in common, but embracing the things that make you different. Our differences are what makes us special, and Frog and Toad celebrate them in what makes them unique, end quote. Even though this is a children's show based on children's books, it will no doubt be a hit with anyone who leaned into cottagecore and other nature, homesteading, or general cozy aesthetics during the pandemic. It's also already doing numbers on gay Twitter. One Twitter user called the new animated series Heartstopper for Amphibians. LGBT outlet Them wondered if the logline saying Frog and Toad celebrate what makes them unique means that the show's producers will, quote, you know, celebrate what makes them unique, end quote. The subtext there is the subtext that many have long read into Frog and Toad, which is that the tandem bicycle riding best pals might have been more than pals. 
Without ample representation of queer people in the media, LGBTQ plus folks have long read between the lines to find representation in characters that may not be declared as queer or in a relationship with one another in the text, but could certainly be perceived that way if a viewer or reader wanted them to be. Often, this has led to writers, producers, and estate holders vehemently denying the queerness of certain characters, but not in the case of Frog and Toad. In a 2016 interview with The New Yorker, Arnold Lobel's daughter, Adrienne Lobel, shared that she thinks this inkling from many readers could be part of the series' sustained popularity, telling The New Yorker, quote, Frog and Toad are of the same sex, and they love each other. It was quite ahead of its time in that respect, end quote. She also thinks that writing the series might have been the beginning of her father coming out, which he did, at least to his family, four years after the first Frog and Toad book was published in the early 1970s. He never got to say for himself what he thought of the deeper relationship between Frog and Toad, as he unfortunately died of AIDS-related illness in 1987. But Colin Stokes, in that old New Yorker article, did dig up this relevant quote from Lobel in 1977 in an interview with a children's book journal. Quote, You know, if an adult has an unhappy love affair, he writes about it. He exercises it out of himself, perhaps, by writing a novel about it. Well, if I have an unhappy love affair, I have to somehow use all that pain and suffering but turn it into a work for children. End quote. So maybe some of Lobel's struggles or joys with coming out seeped their way into the frog and toad stories. Whether he intended the characters to be together or not, knowing that the stories were written by a gay man gives them that little extra layer of resonance for those who, lacking much else, saw themselves in these two amphibian friends. And even just as friends, frog and toad represent a kind of intimate friendship, not to mention a calm, nature-filled daily life that many people only dream of. Their closeness breaks the rules of modern masculine friendships, and their disagreements, as Lobel's daughter astutely pointed out to The New Yorker, teach kids that conflict in relationships is normal, to a point, and that you can make up, remain friends, and show how much you care about each other, even if you don't agree on everything. Based on the logline, that seems to be what Apple TV Plus is focusing on with this new series, so the spirit of Frog and Toad will live on. If you can't wait for April 28th, though, I highly recommend my favorite Twitter bot simply called Frog and Toad Bot. Every three hours, it tweets a couple of lines from a Frog and Toad book, and somehow they all feel so relatable. Well, I say somehow. I know exactly how. It's because Arnold Lobel was a genius at whittling normal but not always talked about human experiences into their most stripped-down language so even a young kid reading it would know that they weren't alone in how they felt. One more frog and toad thing before I go. I was reminded by looking up all the old cartoons and books today that the mail carrier in the frog and toad series is a snail, as in snail mail. But these stories were written in the 70s and 80s. Were people saying snail mail yet? 
According to the Oxford English Dictionary, some early adopters were using snail mail as opposed to email and its predecessors as early as 1982. And there's at least one citation from 1929, which simply refers to ordinary postal service mail that took a very long time to arrive. Now, I imagine that's more of what Lobel was going for in making a snail the mail carrier in his universe. That and the fact that it rhymed, very helpful for children's books. Conversely, I wonder if one of the Usenet folks who first started saying snail mail got the idea from reading a frog and toad book to their kids. Or maybe the snails delivering mail and mail being as slow as snails was just a common idea and frequent motif in other children's stories beyond just frog and toad. Still, it's uh, fun to notice something that feels anachronistic and then get to spend a few minutes trying to figure out which came first, even if you don't quite get to a resolution yet. But with that, that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.